It's great to see you guys. If you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 19. This morning we have uh, an hour of material to get through in 35 minutes. And so that is a great problem to have, but uh, I've got to hustle on the beginning. And so if I lose you, the Scriptures will be up on the screen. If I don't pause and wait for everyone to get there, I am so sorry. It's just so much Bible. I apologize. I'll try to knock it off. Acts chapter 19. Now, we're in the middle of a series uh, called The Way. And The Way was a, a, a phrase or a designation the earliest Christians used to talk about themselves. And sitting behind that was some background we want to look at. So Acts chapter 19, verse 9. This is Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And he goes into the synagogues and uh, speaks boldly. But some, verse 9, but some of the Jews became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the what? The way, capital W. Jump down to verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. So, so one of the six times in the book of Acts, you have this designation called the way. The, the Christians, they became known as Christians, but the earliest way that they referred to themselves is the way. And sitting behind that designation, there, there was, of course, Jesus' famous statement in John uh, 14, even though John 14 hadn't been... Uh, Officially written yet, but it was Jesus announcing that he was the way and the truth and the life. And that meant certainly the way of salvation. But even more deeply than that, when the, the, the first disciples of Jesus used this way of referring to themselves, they had in mind not just a way of believing, but it was actually a way of living. So when they referred to themselves as the way, yes, there was a way of believing that sat behind that, but it was more like the way of walking or the way of, of lifestyling out salvation of Jesus. Uh, go, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Now, this is where I'm going to lose you, and I have to hustle. Psalm, chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to see this idea of lifestyle or walk that sits behind this. Psalm 1, verse 1, page... 5.08 Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. So walk and way were synonymous. So the idea was sinners have a certain way of walking or of living. Do not join them in it. Flip over the book of Proverbs. Chapter 4. Next book over. The book of Proverbs contrasts the way of wisdom and the way of folly or foolishness. Verse 14, Proverbs 4. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. And so what you have is when you, whenever you would talk about walking in the way, that was a way of saying... The way that you lived, right? It was a way of referencing how you conducted your life. Flip over to Isaiah. Boy, I wonder what this passage will say. Perhaps the same thing that the other three had said. I'm a big fan of showing and not telling. So if I, if I say, hey, this is what it means, I'd like to show you that too. Uh, Isaiah 35, verse 8. 
This is uh, Isaiah's vision of a new redemptive work that God will do that is patterned after the redemptive work God did when He rescued His people out of Egypt and led them through the desert. And so verse 8, Isaiah says, And a highway will be there through the desert, and it will be called, notice the capital W, the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. So the idea is when the earliest Christians roamed around and they were designating themselves the way, they had in mind, yes, the way of salvation and yes, a way of believing. But even more deeply than that, they had in mind a way of living, a way of walking out the salvation that had been given them in Jesus. Now, jump, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. You didn't see that one coming. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the Ephesians and reminding them of the way they used to live when they were apart from Christ. As for you, you were dead. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And notice this phrase. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now that's interesting. So Paul writes that the way that you lived apart from Christ was a way congruent with the world, but it was also a way that was energized by someone or something he calls the ruler of the power of the air. Now, I'm the kind of person... Who, when I, you know, as we're, as we're training our kids up, we always talk about consequences of choices, right? So if you choose this way, here's your consequence. And if you choose this way, here's your consequence. And, 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 and certainly in the Old Testament wisdom literature, that is the predominant thing that sits behind this idea of weighing or walking along a path. But then Paul does something really interesting with that idea. And in the book of Ephesians in particular, he keeps talking about walking in a certain way. Don't walk in the way the Gentiles walk. Walk in a new way. Don't walk in a way that was energized by this ruler of the power of the air. Walk in a different way. And he frames this idea of walking in a new way as walking in a way different from the way you used to walk when it was energized by powers and principalities. He takes this concept of the way and frames it in terms of spiritual warfare. Now, I find that very interesting because as a, as a modern, enlight, post-enlightenment, scientific dude, spiritual warfare, you know, some people are kind of weird about it. Would you agree? I mean, there are folks out there that see demons behind every missed parking space and every bad day. You know, I mean, you, and you just go, I, I think sometimes you just have a bad day. It wasn't some plot devised by our adversary. You just had a bad day. And, and so there's some of us that obsess so much on this. The rest of us go to the opposite extreme and pretend like it doesn't really exist. Now, intellectually, we say, oh, yeah, yeah, Satan, demons, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even, even when I use the word Satan, I can't help but hear the church lady. Do you remember uh, from SNL? And, and, and there's a sense in which even God's people have to be reminded that as simple a concept as walking 
can be either energized by powers and principalities or can be done to revolt against them. And so what I want to do a little bit this morning is to give us a jet tour to remind us post-enlightenment scientific folk that there actually is something else going on that we have to factor in to the way we walk. So go to Genesis chapter 1. Now that was all intro. Thus begins the sermon right now. Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. On page one, I think we're all in agreement on that one. Then, okay, you there? Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may what? Rule. And the word rule here, of course, doesn't mean strip mine, pollute or, you know, terrorize. It means to steward the resources and the potentials that God embedded into His good world to take them somewhere, to do something with them that benefits other people and honors God. Now notice, they were to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along where? The ground. Now this becomes interesting in a second. So God creates Adam and Eve. And he, he desires for them, the, the image is kind of like the whole world is God's house and we are the property managers. We're, we're the folks who, on behalf of the landlord, manage the property. And the property is everything else in the world. All the all created order. We were supposed to exercise dominion and governish, governorship over it in the same way God governed us. So, God works six days, we work six days. God rests on the seventh day, we rest on the seventh day. God names, we were to name. Now, one of the things that happens, chapter 2, verse 15, is that God gave them one command. The Lord God, verse 15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are to free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now think about... See, we always want to focus on the one no here. But think about the whole garden full of yeses. I mean, the word Eden means delight. So your address is, I live in the Garden of Delight. You're naked and unashamed. I mean, it's perfect intimacy and shalom and grace and peace and the whole thing. But there was one thing you couldn't do. So, naturally, it's the one thing we decided to fixate on. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, how does the serpent get along? Moves along the ground. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And evidently, they could speak back then. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now we know later in the story, the serpent is representative of the Satan. This, this being, this angel we know as Satan. The Satan is a way, it's a title. It means just the accuser or the adversary. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but he did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle. And then she adds a bit, you must not, we must not touch it or we will certainly die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate and then gave some to her husband. Now, notice what has happened here. It's not only that Adam and Eve left a trusting, obedient relationship with God, which is big enough. And it's not only that they took for themselves something that God was only properly God's, right? Which is the knowledge of good and evil. But they were to rule along fish, animals, birds, and creatures that move along the ground. But now had what? Been ruled by the creature that moved along the ground. What they'd done is taken their dominion over the creature that moved along the ground and had given it away. So that the creature that moved along the ground now ruled them. See, the essence of our fallenness, I mean, this is Romans 1, is that we worshipped and served creation rather than Creator. And so this is an instance where creation itself tempted us into disobedience. And so when they said yes to creation rather than the Creator, they took the dominion that was theirs and gave it away. So what does God do in response? Genesis chapter 3. He curses the serpent. Verse 15. God says to the serpent, and I will put what? Enmity. That's a big old fancy word that means animosity, which is a bigger and fancier word. And I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and hers. Now, this could be a reference to like the offspring of the serpent being other fallen angels. Or it could be a reference to the offspring of the serpent in terms of other people who live in rebellion to God. That's unclear a little bit. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is, by all accounts, the earliest glimpse we get into God's redemptive purpose. That God is going to send through the seed of Eve a he who will strike a blow against the serpent, even though the serpent will wound the he. And this is what we celebrate every Easter weekend, right? Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But what I want you to see is now, instead of shalom and peace and goodness, what is creation now characterized by? Enmity. Animosity. There's now this cosmic kind of warfare that's going on that is the backdrop for the rest of the story. Go, if you would, to the book of Daniel. If you don't know where that is, go to Hosea and turn left. Clears it right up. Go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. I always want to say something witty and cute as, we, as you're turning. Just like that. Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. We're turning, we're turning, we're finding Daniel. We're looking for Daniel. I got to go. Daniel 10, verse 12. Daniel has the gift of interpreting dreams. And there's one particular dream he doesn't know how to interpret. And so he goes before the Lord and says, you know, God, will you give me the interpretation of this dream? Three weeks later, an angel shows up with this message. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I've come in response to them. 
But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Now, he can't mean an earthly prince because he's an angel. So he's meaning some angel prince of the Persian kingdom fought against him for three weeks. Then Michael, great name, then Michael, one of the chief angelic princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen. So, <laughs> evidently, Daniel prays, silence for three weeks. An angel shows up and says, man, I'm telling you what, it was brutal getting here. Traffic was awful. Because I hit the Persian kingdom and there's this dude and I couldn't get past him and so I had to call back up. And now I'm here three weeks later. Now, if you're like me, I, I, I feel our collective skepticism. Because, you know, when, I, when God doesn't answer my prayers, I just simply assume, well, something's wrong with me or something's wrong with God, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if He doesn't answer my prayers, there's some, that, those are the only two options. Evidently, there's a third option. That one of the ways the this, this spiritual war plays itself out is through God's answers to prayer. And I don't have the foggiest idea what this means. I just know as a post-enlightenment scientific rationalist, I don't have categories for this sort of thing in my normal, everyday life. The war, not between equals, but between opposites, kind of dominates the biblical picture. Go Even in the ministry of Jesus, go to the book of Mark. Chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You see this all over the place. We looked at a couple of these last week. But I want you to see just how often. So I'm going to zip through these. Notice how often the spiritual war kind of dominates the ministry of Jesus. Mark 1, verse 12. Jesus had just been baptized and it says, At once the Spirit sent Him out into the wilderness and He was in the wilderness 40 days being tested or tempted by Satan. Jump down to verse 23. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, and just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. This impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him. Okay, flip the page, at least in my Bible. Verse 32, then after that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jump down to verse 39. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Evidently, he did this a lot. Verse 10 of chapter 3. For Jesus had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Jump over chapter three, verse 23. Jesus was so good at casting out demons, they finally accused him of being one. And so Jesus responds, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand as in his come. In fact, no one enters into a strong man's house until he ties up the strong man. 
So Jesus takes this image, right? The world is God's house. We were to be its landlords, but we'd given our landlordship back to creation itself. We now were held in bondage to this enemy. And so Jesus comes and says, hey, one of the ways you can understand my ministry is I've come up. You don't rob a house unless you tie up the guard. So as I'm casting out demons, I'm just binding Satan, the strong man. And I'm plundering his house because it's not really his. It's mine. Jesus describes his whole ministry this way. Jump over to chapter 5. Right? When a, when a man possessed by a legion of demons sees Jesus from a distance, verse 6, he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In Jesus' name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. So what you have is you have all over the place this war that's ongoing. In fact, consider the many ways. The New Testament speaks of our adversary. Go ahead and fire this thing up. John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come so that they, us, might have life. Notice John 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. This is Jesus speaking. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now the word prince is the word archon, and it means the supreme official governing a region. So this is what Jesus calls Satan. He has evidently real power. He uses the same phrase in John 14. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He uses it in John 16, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Notice in Acts 10, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth went with the Holy Spirit and power, And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Even Jesus' healing ministry was spiritual warfare, according to Peter. Look at Colossians. For Jesus has rescued us from the dominion or kingdom of darkness and brought brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So evidently Satan has a kingdom in the same way that God has a kingdom. Ephesians 2, we've already looked at. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Notice 1 John 3. The reason, the second part, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Notice 1 John 5. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, are you a little overwhelmed with all this? I hope so. I wanted you to feel the preponderance, and I'm skipping so much stuff, of the witness that the New Testament has to the reality of this opposing kingdom. See, as as scientific post-enlightenment folk, because some people are really weird about this stuff, we all go to the opposite extreme and just think it's not really practically real. And so even as I'm talking, I mean, I can just feel our skepticism. I can just feel it. I have it myself. And I grew up in a very, very conservative church where we never talked about this stuff. This was just for the Pentecostals and those weird people. You know, and, and, and that was the undercurrent anyway. And, and, and so I, I graduate from college. I become an investment banker. And then I begin to feel the faintest stirrings of becoming a, a youth pastor. And, and again, being a pastor isn't more spiritual than anything else. But I began, as that, as that began to happen, I began to have 
the weirdest, darkest, most evil nightmares I've ever had in my life. And, and they were so consistent, they couldn't be chalked up to like bad pizza the night before. I mean, these were like, these were really dark and demonic. And, and in fact, back, back then, we had answering machines. We had these things in our houses called answering machines, and it was like a tape recorder. Because you had a, a, a phone in your house. This is for the young kids. Um, and, and it was just interesting. And I remember, I remember, I, and, and, and so I'm having these nightmares, and I go to my pastor. And I said, what's going on? And my pastor was so unhelpful. He said, count yourself blessed that the enemy thinks you are worthy of such attention. Awesome. So I stopped sleeping and I'm trying one day to, to one day to take a nap. And 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 I hear the phone ring and I hear my outgoing voice. And then and then when it beeps, I hear this just evil, demonic voice. And I feel this thing sit on my chest and begin to choke me. And I'm not making this up. I'm not a totally weird person, at least at that point in my life. And I literally have to think, because I couldn't speak, I couldn't breathe. I had to think in my own head, Jesus is my Savior. And the thing went away. And I was just like, okay, well, this is interesting. And then I began to start to pray for people. And I had all kinds of weird stuff happen when you start praying for people. I mean, there was one young guy a couple, couple of years ago who was struggling with pornography. I know that will shock people, that people struggle with that. But... Perhaps he wasn't alone. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and he comes in and he wants prayer for this. And so we go back in, into the office and, and I begin to pray for him. And when I pray for people like this, I kind of keep my eyes open, just see what's happening. And I just say, uh, I sense the presence of the enemy. Oh, uh, That's all I say. And his whole face and countenance and his body starts writhing and he starts choking and uh, snot and slobber. And I mean, and I just... I'll be right back. And so I walk over and I grab a couple of pastors and we come back. I mean, and, and I mean, I, I don't know what's going on. Uh, Jesus seemed pretty good at this. So we just said, in Jesus' name, get out of here. And we just prayed that. And then after a while, his body relaxed and, and I went home freaked out. And then I got an email from him a couple of months later. No kidding. And he just said, I don't know what happened, but that day, everything changed. The battle changed that day. And it was one of those things. Well, awesome. I'm telling you the tame stories. Okay. I have seen things that Hollywood can't do justice to. And, and here's what I've come. I've come to the conclusion that, A, we have a worldview problem. We just think this stuff is pre-scientific and we're oh so smart now. But B, we have a theological problem. See, we believe that we can't be touched once we're followers of Jesus. And I think that is exactly opposite of what the Bible says. Why would God inspire the writers of Scripture to continually warn us about our adversary if He could do nothing to us? See, we all think, well, I can't be possessed by a demon because i got the Spirit in me. Well, that's true, but the Bible doesn't talk a lot about demon possession the way we understand it. It talks about demonization. And it totally teaches that Christians can be demonized, influenced and oppressed by the enemy. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. 
See, we just think we can't be touched. And that just doesn't make sense of a lot of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, here's just one example. We could look at several others. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a what? A foothold. Now, this is written to Christians who clearly have the Spirit of God, saved by the grace of God, clearly. And he says, deal with your anger, lest you give the enemy a foothold. Now, the word foothold is the word topos. It means a room. Evidently, you and I are saved utterly and absolutely by the finished work of Jesus. And in fact, Paul writes in Colossians that whatever written list of accusations the enemy could have against you has been nailed to the cross. So the enemy has no legal basis to accuse you or to influence you. But evidently, it is possible to hand some authority back to our adversary so that he can accuse us and tempt us and influence us. And he uses the image of a stronghold. And what sin does he attach it to? He doesn't say, hey, avoid Ouija boards. Although you should do that. He uses the image of anger. Now, I haven't met anyone for whom that passage isn't relevant. Because if if anger can leave open a door, well, then so can lust. And so can greed. And so there's a sense in which you and I walk around asleep. Because, well, we're oh so scientific now. But then secondly, we just don't believe that the enemy can do much to us. And I just don't think that does justice to the witness of the Scriptures. Now, the question becomes, okay, well, so what? Three implications, real quick. First implication is this. To be honest, some of us need to just repent of our sin. In other words, confessing our sin before God, do that. But if you're not closing the windows and doors the enemy is using to influence us, you'll just have to confess it again and again. We would be shocked to know how many people in here wrestle with pornography. Men and women. We'd be shocked. That is a door that gives the adversary room. I struggle with that issue. And one of the reasons I fight so hard against it is because I don't want my freedom now sacrificed to our adversary. I don't want that stuff in me or my home. See, what Paul does is he opens us up to a whole world that says how you walk in real life matters. You're saved by grace. God approves of you. So it's not earning or gaining His favor. One of the things, one of the reasons why obedience matters is because it's fighting for your freedom. And some of us just have to repent of sins that we just casually tolerate. Because I firmly believe we are whole people and there are physical issues that are going on in this room. And there are emotional issues that are going on in this room. And there are mental issues that are going on in this room. But so often, if you're like me, I forget there are spiritual issues going on in this room too. And that whole mix 
can work together for our bad. Second thing, implication, at least for me, is that we need to wake up. One of the strangest pictures I've ever seen was a picture, and I don't remember if it was a sketch of a picture or a real picture, but it was of one of the battles in the Civil War. And it was being fought down in a valley. And on the rim of the valley, families had gathered and were having picnics watching the battle. And I remember thinking that is a very fitting picture of the American church. That if this is true, and there's carnage all around us in our families, and our marriages, every time you take a step towards godliness, you feel resistant. I mean, think about the ways we set up new believers to struggle when we tell them Jesus is going to solve all your problems. Right? We don't tell them that when you accept Jesus, you put a big old target on your back. Because why would the enemy oppose you if you're just going with the flow of everybody else? So we don't tell them that people are not born into a romantic comedy. They're born into Saving Private Ryan. Right? If you've ever seen the movie, it's the most graphic depiction of the invasion of Normandy Beach. And the thing that always struck me as you're watching this is that nobody was surprised they were being shot at. They knew exactly they were in a war. We get surprised that we get shot at. And so, for some of us, that doesn't mean we see demons behind you know, every bad thing, but it does mean it becomes a factor in the way that we pray, in the way that we live. But here's the third thing. If this is true, then who is our enemy? Who's our real enemy? Paul says very famously in Ephesians, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and rulers and authorities. Now, if that's true, then Obama isn't your enemy. Democrats are not your enemies. Republicans are not your enemies. Romney isn't your enemy. The ACLU isn't your enemy. The gay community isn't your enemy. Illegal immigrants are not your enemies. If it has flesh and blood, we're to fight for it, not against it. You understand that? Now, of course, we exercise democratic responsibility and privilege. But the hatred that comes from the Christian community only furthers the powers. Because you cannot do Jesus' work unless you do it in Jesus' way. And last I checked, Jesus Christ didn't go around hating people. See, we have this bag of weapons that none of us want to use. Right? A good economy cannot defeat the devil. A powerful military cannot defeat the devil. A great political system cannot defeat the devil. The only thing that defeated him was Jesus of Nazareth giving his life willingly. He said, I could call down legions of angels. I could have picked up Peter's sword. But what I did instead is no one takes my life. I give it. Evidently, self-sacrificial love is the only thing that smothers evil. And the church is to be the place where we learn to wage war that way. See, anytime we've tried to use the world's methods to bring about Jesus' results, you get the Crusades and the Inquisition. We have this whole bag of warfare that none of us want to use. 
Foot washing. Service. Sacrifice. Kindness. Prayer. The Gospel itself. Scripture. Communion. Baptism. See, that's how we wage war. If our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, when you're asleep, when I'm asleep to the real battle, it's easy to war against flesh and blood, right? You can see them and you can see when you hit them. So what did Adam and Eve do when they rebelled against the serpent? Did they fight the serpent or did they fight each other? What did, what did Cain and Abel do? Did they fight the serpent or did they fight each other? And what do you and I do? Do we fight the serpent and do we fight each other? And so we just spend lots of time waging war against flesh and blood because we're asleep to the real enemy. Now please hear me. We care about issues. We care about politics. But sometimes we put our hope in those things as if they are going to defeat our adversary. And they're not. Jesus already has, and we overcome the same way He did. End of story. We're called to do Jesus' work Jesus' way. So would you stand with me? For some of us this morning, as we worship, this stirs up a whole bunch of stuff. And as we sing together truth, I just want to pray for you. Would you close your eyes? In the powerful name of Jesus of Nazareth, we ask you, mighty God, that you would come against anything that is in this place that is not of you. Father God, we pray by the authority of Jesus that you would begin to shape and define this community around not only the priorities of Jesus and the purposes and mission of Jesus, but the methods that Jesus used to wage war against our adversary. God, would we be defined more and more by our love and our service and our sacrifice for one another? Would we, Lord God, be so freed from powers and principalities that even the way that we live would declare their defeat? Lord Jesus, we just ask that You would come against anything that encumbers us from wholeheartedly following after You. And God, my prayer is that You would bring deep conviction on those of us who have gaping windows open to the enemy's influence. Your kindness leads us to repentance, Lord God. And so not out of fear or guilt, but joyfully we pray that You would expose our sin and rebellion that You might come and rescue and clean us up. And that we might be a place where Jesus does nothing but increase.